I see what can be done with digital. I've done it with digital and I'm trying to figure out how to help more organizations do that because we, we don't, we don't win, right? Like at the end of the day, we don't win if we don't do it. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Brad Caldana, is founder and president of the Center for Digital Strategy, working on digital training for thousands of practitioners at progressive campaigns and organizations. We had a good conversation about his career path and what he's working on at his center. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Brad Caldana of Center for Digital Strategy. What do Blue State, Sierra Club, and Indivisible have in common? They all use Civic Shout to grow email lists that raise money like clockwork. And now, so can you. Instead of vaporizing money with Facebook ads or burning bridges with spam, a new wave of digital directors are helping Democrats and nonprofits acquire opt-ins and nail their monthly goals with Civic Shout. Environmental Action called Civic Shout a wildly better way to grow your email list. And Clarify Agency saw a 200% return on ad spend in just two months. Head to civicshout.com forward slash partners to learn more and schedule a demo. That's civicshout.com forward slash partners. So Brad, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Brad Caldana. The last name used to be Shank, so some folks still recognize that last name. Long personal story, but but took my mother's maiden name as an adult. I've been working in the political campaign and nonprofit space in some capacity for 20 years, originally on the volunteer side, doing things like uh, helping screenings for human rights-based films. The lightning rod that really like sent us here, I was volunteering in... Florida for the 2008 Obama campaign. And I remember getting signatures out on the street and doing the whole thing. The campaign didn't hire over the summer because if folks remember, Florida had changed the primary schedule, you know, Florida being Florida. And the candidates agreed to not campaign down there for the primary. I was doing freelance work, doing video, writing for a travel and tourism blog while doing other activist volunteer stuff. And the summer came around and I reached out to the campaign when they got set up there and I was like, hey, are you guys hiring? They're like, yes, we are hiring for field organizers. And they could have told me anything. They could have been like, you will sit in a dark closet and staple papers all night. I'm like, yeah, I'll do that. I'm in. So many of us were super in. And the person who managed the website that I was doing a lot of video and writing for was like, you didn't ask them about a new media job. And I was like, I don't even know if campaigns hire that. (laughs) And so I met the new media director who was who was wonderful. And mostly they were working on the tools in-house. And it's funny, I had a, I had a conversation about Twitter. And I said, hey, are you, are you all doing anything with Twitter, like on the state level? I, I know there's a national account. They're like, I don't even know what Twitter is. And I was like, yeah, I'm not really even sure if it's that useful for like this kind of politics right now. Maybe someday, <laughs> right? And then to see the Twitter election come later was pretty bizarre. I ended up sticking around in Obama world for a long time. Was there 
doing organizing with organizing for action when when new media was really getting going. No, organizing for America while we were at the DNC. And so I was helping other states set up their social media accounts and, and became a, a regional new media desk. Like, what does that even mean? <laughs> but helping the states with their new media strategy and um, was there through the 2010 election cycle and, and moved to Chicago for the 2012 campaign, where I was the digital training director, which was this theory and idea that I had that, you know, we had done so much in training people in organizing that if we could apply that to digital, what kind of lasting impact could we have in the world? And so we had a digital fellowship that year. It's really beautiful. <laughs> Many of those fellows are digital directors or executive directors at different organizations now. So it worked. I spent a lot of that time curating trainings across the, the various different digital departments. And for folks who don't really have a lens into like size and scale, I remember after the campaign, people were like, oh, can you give us the Obama magic? I was like, oh yeah, hire me the 200 digital staffers plus the like close to 100 tech stackers who built everything. And sure, we will do all of the same things and give me the same ad budget, right? <laughs> a lot of folks don't get that full window in that like when you're talking about digital at that scale, it is massive. And there were roughly another 100 people out in the States doing digital stuff, right? And so I had this really amazing role of helping develop trainings for field staff on how to use digital in that space our state digital directors, how they could help better equip their team. And then just some other cross-department digital stuff. Um, digital stuff is so big. <laughs> I think it's how we all think about it. But And I say stuff because one of the things I always say in digital is like what we have put together in digital that we all call digital is really like 10 different disciplines. Like digital advertising is a really different discipline than doing video production, than doing graphic design, than building a website, than doing organizing. Or like if you're a director managing people, managing people is a wildly different skill set than being the person who does digital production, right? And so I had this amazing role, stuck around for organizing for action, and we started interfacing with other orgs. And I realized a lot of these big orgs, their digital strategy was five years behind, right? And I just had this amazing privilege to work with one of the biggest and, and really kind of one of the savviest digital teams to date at that size outside of corporate America, right? And so... I kept interfacing with other orgs. I took a role from there at Rainforest Action Network, where I helped them build their digital program. And again, I was interfacing with big green environmental groups and human rights groups. I was like, whoa, <laughs> everyone's digital strategy appears to be like five to 10 years behind. And this is now 2015. And one of the things I realized too when I was there was like, I have such a passion for training, but I don't have time to create individualized training for my staff. And it was hard to find training for my staff. And I left there to go back and work on several things around the 2016 election cycle, was the head of engagement at vote.org, but was also doing some consulting on a few races, doing some mentorship for the state digital directors on the Hillary campaign. I just said to myself, after this, I really want to try to keep working on scaling the strategy. And, and one of the things I realized from there and thereafter is that digital strategy, there's a whole bunch of big barriers to digital strategy and a, a number of them have only grown, right? Like, if you didn't get to work at a really big political campaign or one of the really big NGOs, right? There are a few NGOs that right, have a $100 million budget and can afford a 40-person team. They're real outliers, right? And you normally don't leave there and go to a smaller org, right? And so if you're at a smaller org than that, which is most organizations, right? Like most organizations are not at that size. You're either paying at least 20000 a month for an agency that hires people that have been to those places, right? Or 
you're falling behind. That, that's really kind of my take on it. And, and so my passion has been, how do we take strategy, move it from big orgs to smaller orgs and adapt? There's a critical piece there. A friend told me recently, they're like, you know, one of the things I love about working with you is you worked on really big things, but you, you help figure out how we adapt that to small. Because they aren't the same resource. There aren't the same things. It's different. It's not even the same digital sometimes. And so how do we adapt in the digital space? And so put out a book called The Digital Plan in 2017, kind of outlining some of that for folks. And, and it's funny, for a long time, that wasn't dated because, because while tools were changing, kind of general frameworks weren't changing that much. And I've been doing a range of trainings called The Digital Plan, and we morphed The Digital Plan into the Center for Digital Strategy to make it clear that we wasn't just planning, it was all things digital, right? Like all of these wild things that fall under this one big umbrella. And how do we help scale that, right? How do we bring in folks that want to share their knowledge with other folks in trainings and summits and different things? And so that's kind of that's kind of where I'm at today. A bunch of other orgs <laughs> sprinkled in there that I've helped, you know, a bunch through through training and stuff as well. But yeah, where I'm at today is, is figuring out how we scale knowledge across the vast digital space to create more change, right? Like at the end of the day, my thing is, how do we empower more organizations with the right skills and strategy so that they can more effectively create more change, right? And, and that's part of the reason why I love training, right? You, you have the ability to help a whole bunch of folks at once uh, and move that needle in big ways. So um, yeah, that's the long, <laughs> the long-winded pitch or story. Well, you seem to have a enterprise called Center for Digital Strategy. What is that? What's the founding story there? What does it do? Yeah. So the founding story is I started doing some trainings under the umbrella of the digital plan and realizing that it was bigger than that. just that. I changed the name to Center for Digital Strategy. And we host a whole bunch of summits throughout the year. We do lead off the year, normally in February, with the Digital Strategy Summit, just a five-day grab bag of all things digital, kind of coming at all different levels for folks. And then we follow up with verticals throughout the year. One of the things I've realized, right, a lot of us who work in the digital space, we a lot of times focus on email or we focus on different things. So we have these other summits just on email, digital fundraising, digital advertising throughout the year that are really a three-day boost in the arm of strategy, bringing in folks that are best practices, hard skills, and then we do courses as well. And so then we also have both live and self-paced courses where someone can come in and, and learn skills or strategies that they can immediately apply to their organization. And we're also kind of rebuilding some of the community pieces. It, one of the interesting things, it's like a part of the change in digital strategy is years ago, I'd started digging into building some online community stuff and or applications. And Facebook was such a juggernaut that we were all there. We were just all on Facebook, right? And, and so it's like getting someone to log in and do anything anywhere other than Facebook was hard for almost a decade, which is pretty nuts. But now we're in this new era where things have gotten really decentralized again. And, and so we're going to be rebuilding some community features so folks can kind of come together in groups and share best practices or find other people in similar roles to them, right? Like what we call digital, I find a lot of people wearing a lot of different hats doing the work, right? There are a lot of comms directors who have put on a digital hat. There are pure digital directors. There are people who are quasi digital directors. There are organizations that have no one with the title, but do a lot of the work, right? And they need to be able to connect with other folks who find themselves in similar positions. So we're also building out some online space tools to help connect folks and build that kind of connective tissue. We also want to reach out and figure out how to train more executive directors and leaders we are facing a double problem 
in digital strategy right now. One, we don't have enough experienced digital staff to fulfill all of the strategy and all of the roles as well as we could across organizations. Two, the staff we do have keep getting burnt out. Uh, they keep having unrealistic expectations put on them by organizational leadership. And, and a lot of these folks, because they're committed to the mission, they, they're trying to do it. They're trying to do it. And, and because they don't know that it's not possible, <laughs> right? Like no one said, like, do, do not try to keep doing all of this yourself. You're going to burn out. They all keep burning out. And so we, what we see is underinvestments in digital, then people burning out the people who could do the work. The talent pipeline keeps leaking at the end, which is not good. That's one of the things where one of my passions and missions right now is to not just reach folks already working in digital and comms, but is to reach organizational leaders and folks thinking on that level to help them understand what is realistic and, and how to better develop organizational strategies and plans that that are designed for, for real success, right? That are not a wish and a dream that's unfunded and then you burn out everyone. There seems to be some overlap, at least in my mind, between what you're doing right now and what NOI or New Organizing Institute used to do when that existed. Were you familiar with that group? I was an NOI trainer. <laughs> yeah. And some of some of my other training friends were NOI trainers. Um, actually do a number of trainings, typically with Beth Becker, who who runs her own digital boot camp and missed NOI. Yeah, I, th I think we carry some of that spirit on with a number of the trainers who are from there. You mentioned like a February conference. Who comes to this and who comes to the follow-on ones? Yeah, it's a really wide range of folks from a wide range of organizations, civic political advocacy groups. We also have folks who are just from more pure charity, nonprofit charity, uh, a good chunk of folks from labor and, and folks coming in from agencies and things like that as well, right? Like w what we try to build is something that is applicable to you regardless of your role as well, that like whether you're coming in from a, a digital role, more senior, more junior, we kind of create a, a, a spectrum of sessions, some that are more cutting edge and some that are kind of 101. Um, and sometimes the 101 is cutting edge, right? Like, hey, there's this new thing. And now you need a 101 on it, regardless of where you thought you were a year ago, right? Because this landscape is rapidly evolving as always. Yeah. So a really wide range of folks and political campaigns. We also uh, have a track again this year, specifically designed for political campaigns that we're going to be putting out a lot of content on to really help move the needle for uh, down ballot races. You had a, something you wrote recently about digital strategy. What's the content that was in that document? The article is called Digital Strategy for Social Impact 2.0. And that's really kind of my thesis of the year. Also, is Digital Strategy for Social Impact 2.0. I got to this point throughout the year, we were running different trainings in several of the summits I was talking to folks, I was like, yeah, this just doesn't work like it used to. Or like, oh, those rules don't apply anymore. I got to the end of the year and I was talking with someone. Someone's like, yeah, it's like a whole new thing. And I was like, oh, shit, it is. It is a whole new thing. And that explains why I see a lot of organizations struggling because they're trying to run the playbook from before. What I really believe is that for at least 10 or 15 years, we saw a pretty steady evolution of social media or of digital at large, right? Like, Email continued to work and was working in pretty consistent ways, maybe for 20 years, right? Like it got refined as a practice. You know, you could just A-B test. That was enough to get you kind of where you needed to go. Social media was pretty predictable, right? Like while the experiences were changing, they were changing in a forward arc progression, right? You Like Facebook, you could post a little bit in a picture. <laughs> and then Facebook decided it wanted to be 
basically they wanted, they wanted to take down Flickr, right? So so they really pushed photos and they made it really engaging. And that was great. And then they realized like, oh, well, YouTube makes a ton of money off of videos. We should let people host videos. And then they pushed videos. But you could follow the trend if you were running a Facebook page for an organization. If you follow the trends and their best practices, regardless of your size, you grew almost in a clear incremental or even exponential way if you just followed the best practices, right? And it, and it worked until it didn't. And about 2018 is when they were like, we're going to switch to groups because the, a lot of things aren't working here for us. And because we, you know, we don't want to regulate some of this stuff, right? Like, and, and so you saw a real hard pivot though, in the last two years to groups where you look at your timeline, most of what you're seeing are from groups, maybe groups you're not even in. <laughs> and like this other suggested content that feels a lot more like TikTok, right? And similarly, like Twitter had a pretty consistent arc. You could eventually post a video, you could post links. It was actually pretty good for posting links and getting some site traffic and putting things there, right? And it continued to work again until it, a billionaire bought it. And uh, I, I we should say a, a fascist right-wing billionaire bought it. Or maybe a trillionaire. Yeah, hard to know. Yeah, hard to know. Um, the life of making money from everyone else's money and calling it your own. And so Twitter stopped working the way it did. And in there, we saw this rise of Instagram, right? This first person content, the creator content. And Instagram fundamentally changed. Like one of the things that we see with the, the switch to Instagram and, and TikTok. And, and it's unfortunate thing organizations are bad at. And it's one of the big struggles is organizations at large weren't doing great at, at social media to begin with, right? There were some groups that were amazing at Facebook, few that were good at Twitter. Why? Because Twitter was a first person personality that needed personality. And until you got everything through approvals, you lost all personality. You got really bland and awful content. And the this new era... I think of social media, so much of it is, is creator-based content, is first person. You see some entity-based content that also does well, but they're really thoughtful about it, right? They're really thoughtful about who are the voices and how do we present different voices from one account, but it's still voices, right? It's still, how do you present and curate voices? I had called organizations, I, I was thinking about as zeitgeists, right? They're like zeitgeists, right? Instead of being in the zeitgeist, they're missing. Like There are these amazing conversations happening about progressive social justice in social media. And it was big and loud and most organizations were actually missing. They were just broadcasting out into the void and like hoping it worked. And it didn't. For the most part, it didn't for most organizations. And they were bad with their graphic design, right? And so we've made a leap past graphic design to first person video. And organizations were bad at the last iteration of social media most organizations have been bad at video, right? Like they also struggled to produce video, even when video was driving the algorithms. And now it's a whole new kind of video and a whole new kind of creator class. And organizations, actually most organizations aren't even thinking, don't even realize that that is how social media works. They're still wondering like, oh yeah, we made a bunch of graphics, but none of our graphics are performing well. I wonder why. It's because the algorithm doesn't want your graphics anymore, right? And like barely wanted them before, except for a few outlying orgs. And like one of the major shifts, I, I put out a template for free. Basically, it's the digital plan. It's a blueprint for digital plan. It's, and, and most folks who kind of see it in a course love it and, and use it in their organization. And in the budget section, there's a section for creators for digital ads, because I'm like, if you're running a serious digital advertising program in 2024, it should include funds to spread your message action engagement via creators. And if not, I don't think you have a real budget. I mean, sure, you have a budget. It's fine. 
But a real budget should include that, if, especially if you're doing something big, um, you're trying to really move the needle and influence people. And the reason why this big shift is so important is that we have left what is now legacy social media, and that has shifted. And there are broad swaths of people that will, like, won't see your content unless it's coming through a creator or influencer. And I know a lot of folks hate the phrase influencer because we all have this vapid idea of what an influencer is from early TikTok, just like food pictures and paradise pictures. But like an influencer is anyone who influences a community, right? And there are these creators who create awesome content that reaches their community, but they also want to engage in progressive issues. And so there are progressive organizations and marketplaces as agencies helping you connect to these folks. And so they also come into our trainings and that's going to be another big part of this year. Some of the other things I just want to touch on too, on this like 2.0 piece of it is like, you know, I, th I think a lot of organizations deprioritize their websites for a long time. We, part of it was the shift of social media, right? You could count on your Facebook page driving a lot of engagement and you would get it over to your petition. And there are some or small orgs or small political campaigns like, oh no, we don't really even have a, a website. We just use our Facebook page. And in like 2016, 17, I couldn't disagree with that. I'm like, yeah, you're probably going to get more bang for your buck. Like you're small. You don't have capacity to build this out the right way. And now we've like leapt also again, wildly forward into this new website era where like you can't count on social media <laughs> to drive traffic to your websites. You have to figure out like, how do you build a website that's engaging that people actually want to come back to? and the double stacked problem there is that most organizations didn't have any thought of search engine optimization. I can't believe how rare I ever hear that brought up in the civic space that like, and it's kind of like piece one, like the building block one of any piece of content you put up should have an SEO strategy. And the SEO is driven by these massive algorithm machines that are looking <laughs> at your site speed. And why do they care about that? Because over 50% of people use internet on their phone. There is also a, a social justice component to this in, in a, a race-based class system that we have here, right? Like marginalized communities of color tend to experience disproportionately their access to the internet is via their phone. So if you have a slow, clunky old website that's not built for the modern era, you're, you're actually excluding these communities or rural communities. Lots of rural communities aren't on broadband. And if they are on mobile on their phone, it's it's still not great mobile internet. And this is part of the, the story of self I missed. So I grew up poor uh, in poverty in rural Pennsylvania. And so know the experience of, of people being left behind and left out kind of grew up in a, in a failed Rust Belt little community that, you know, turned itself around, luckily had a college in town. But you see that that people being left behind a lot. And um, the thing I see that happens to us in the digital space, right, is, is a lot of the folks who are working in digital now, more often than not, middle-class upbringing, upper-middle-class upbringing, but they're working in progressive stuff because they care, but they don't understand that experience of these other folks, right? And so some of these things are just critically important that, you know, this is how we reach people. And then it's like a short jump to text messaging. Like so few orgs are using text messaging and those that do so few are using it well, <laughs> right? Half a percent of any org uses text messaging well. And there's a couple I will shout out. I love uh, NEA, the National Educate Educators Association. And I also love HRC. Most of what I get from them is about their store, but their store is awesome. <laughs> their products are amazing. They're on point. 
you come to expect it from them. You know, like, oh, they're going to send me something awesome. And in between that, they're going to send me some actions that I can do as well, right? And it's being bastardized by bad political consultants, right? Like all of these folks at the end of the cycle, getting the list of names and just bombarding people with bad messages. And then other words, not investing in it throughout the rest of the year, right? And so I, I think there's this huge, just this huge missing gap in, in text messaging that organizations are unaware of. And, and not just unaware of, like all of these things are wildly shifting. And I think a lot of folks are running email as they did four years ago. And those of you who don't know, there was this major shakeup, iOS 17 with Apple changed both tracking ads, so made the digital advertising space more expensive, but also made list growth for email harder because the emails got more expensive, right? You could, and to be honest, you actually cannot target as well. If you're running ads, you're getting more generalized stuff in, uh, unless you're using a third party, there's some great third party places where you can pay for emails in an ethical way and, and add them to your list. And there's some bad ways to do, to do that too. Hey, let, let me ask you about that while you're on that, because I'm aware of a number of sources of email and text, let's say for fundraising. I think you were associated with Care2 at one point. Is that right? I collaborate with Care2. Yeah. yeah. So, but who would you put on the list of good places to get this and why, and who would you be less likely to recommend? Yeah. I'm going to give a little nuance on that answer because I have friends at both kinds of places. You'll typically only see us allowing sponsors from places doing these things ethically. If if someone happens to be sponsoring and they're not, that's probably an oversight. But Care2 does it really ethically where people opt in and they know that they're opting in to get a message based on a petition or something they're running. The folks over at Civic Shout also do this really ethically as well. Similar thing, really clear opt-ins and, and you know you're joining their list. The things I will say that are less ethical, and because I haven't checked in kind of how folks are doing it, basically, if you're going somewhere and you're just paying for a CSV Excel file of email names, a spreadsheet of names and email addresses, that is unethical. Uh, Unless they opted in somewhere and someone's transferring you the data via that. But like, you know, there's some places that will model emails for you and they'll match it against other lists and they'll do some really interesting things. And what I've heard from folks is it is great data. It is technically great data. It is also spam. It is also not good. It is also not what we should be doing if we care about the experience for the individuals. The direct purchase piece is complicated. They should have an opt-in. If you're buying emails from a vendor and they're just giving you a CSV because they think this matches your request, it's technically illegal (laughs) based on canned spam. And it's technically an illegal thing to do to actually load those people into your thing and, and send them out, like you could technically be fined for that. I think some of the people in that latter category are looking very carefully at who is responsive to emails, like on a fundraising basis. And so people get good fundraising results from emails that have worked well before. And so I assume very tempting to an organization to go to someone who has relationships with lots of organizations and has a lot of data about who is a good giver, who opens these emails, et cetera, right? Yeah, that is exactly it. A friend of mine who's recently done email purchases across the spectrum, like, yeah, they perform better from there. It's really great data, but it's wrong. 
the data is not wrong. <laughs> doing it's wrong, right? We shouldn't be doing that. And it's complicated, right? Let me ask you this question this way. Let's say uh, there's an organization that I talked to recently, less than $5 million budget, small, has a lot of really interesting content, is just in the beginning of building their presence in the world. Supposing you were advising an organization like that, has a really good pro-democracy mission, has lots of good connections in the world, wants them to get heard broadly, wants their content to be heard broadly. In our 2.0 version of what you're talking about, in the in the world as it is right now, which you've talked about a lot of the ways which is different than five years ago or 15 years ago, what, what would be the the key first moves that you would make if you're that kind of organization, you're trying to get heard, you're probably trying to raise money, you're probably trying to figure out what platforms to be on and how to be on them and whether to use the creator marketing or other ways of getting your word out. How would you tackle that? Yeah, I would go back to the fundamentals. So that's one of the things I'm also going to be talking a lot about this year too, is a lot of the fundamentals have held true. So creating personas of who you want to reach and, and creating content for audiences that you want to reach. What I see a lot of organizations do is that they create this generalized content and throw it into the void and assume it's going to reach someone. So you're talking about like what someone would do who knew something about inbound marketing, where you create different personas and you put information up that is going to attract attention answering questions that they might have, things like that, or am I off base there? You are totally on base, but it's not, it's about creating the audience personas and, and thinking about really distinct audiences. Like who do we need to reach for our mission? Because it's, that's actually going to also determine the platforms and the tools and the kind of content. One very simple example, I love this, an organization that did this, did it in a really smart way. I talked to them a couple of years ago. They're doing a survey around healthcare, and I think healthcare and HIV, they, they found that folks over, I think it was over 30 then, it's probably over 35 now, or maybe over 40, uh, resonated more with people who appeared to have authority. And people under 30 uh, registered more for people who appeared to be peers, right? And so they found if they put a medical professional out on content, when they were targeting an older audience, they were more likely to engage and wrote it in language from authoritative versus this is my peer talking to you. And this is why we need to do this survey and care about this. The under 30 wanted a picture of their peer and they wanted the, the entire content experience to be that way. And so you have to know who are you trying to reach to do what and on what channels are we planning to reach those folks? Let's say, let's say we're trying to reach people who for some reason are on the fence between Biden and Trump or not voting. Yeah. Let's say there's probably a couple, couple of different segments, even on the fence. Because a lot of people they hear on the fence, they're thinking like white independents who are like kind of conservative, right? But I think there's probably a lot, a, a good chunk of general working class folks that like, I don't know why it matters because like shit hasn't gotten better, right? And, and young folks, right? And those are three really different audiences, right? And so look, Facebook is still a juggernaut for older audiences, right? And, and it still reaches, it's the biggest platform for all people, right? So I, I would, without a doubt, have a strategy that involves Facebook also be building i'd be building explainers but all these i'd also be building some first person video it would look different and be different in different places so for my older audience I'd, I'd be doing some more horizontal video more of what you see 
on Facebook, on YouTube. I'd be designing elements of my website that answers questions, that loads fast, gets them exactly what they need, potentially even, you know, designing different elements of the website based on that, right? Because reaching them is really different than, you know, maybe I've got some young voters who are on the fence, right? So this audience, I may go record some first person video of people of that age, of that persuasion, talking about why they got to get out there, right? And build a whole content stream around that. Definitely be leaning into email on those folks, but also text messaging. Everyone, Everyone's texting, right? And whereas like, let's say I'm going after the younger audience, I am definitely thinking TikTok and Instagram. I am definitely investing in creators there, just full stop. Especially if we're a legacy org and we've not been doing good on the internet, which probably most of us, I would definitely be working with influencers. And, and to do that, like I've interviewed... I think four heads of companies that are connecting progressive influencers to to progressive organizations. Who would you work with among that group or beyond that group if you were uh, trying to make that happen? Or would you just do it yourself if you're an organization? I would definitely work with them. (laughs) And here's why. Even before this creator class, those who worked with surrogates or worked with celebrities in the past know that it can be hard. You know, I I will name at least one. There's a a couple of folks I've been engaging with. I I, collaborate a lot with the folks in Social Current, a a Gen Z-led creator marketplace. I I know Ashwath, yes. Yeah, I'm guessing Ashwath has been on. So what can a group like Ashwath Group, what can they do for you from your perspective? Yeah, I I mean, I I think, you know, Social Current, Vocal media and advocacy are, are a couple of groups I know working with kind of some different groups. Here's one of the things I think is super important about this is that they're going to interface. A, they're going to know the people who are interested in the content in your niche. And then they're going to help interface with the influencers and help you navigate that. I know from working with celebrities is that it's a wild spectrum. Some of the biggest celebrities are super easy to work with. <laughs> and I got a, a great view of this working in the Obama campaign, doing digital and, and going out and working in the field on some of it too, in the States doing digital. There were like 12 people working on surrogate stuff, just in HQ, and then all these other people working on connecting them. You had to work with their agent, do all of these things, right? And and a lot of these, even not big creators, but they still have someone helping manage their stuff, right? And so if you're working with Ashwath or his team, they know how to interface with that creator to make it smooth. And they also know how to help you build a campaign. A fun thing we do have coming up soon, we're actually building a course on how to manage a creator campaign and department inside your org, because I think it's a yes and. I think some orgs will build that muscle, but it's even just good to know how to strategize this to start with, because this is a whole new muscle for almost all of us, right? And what you're getting when you work with them is that insight into the creator and and managing that relationship, uh, which will get you a better product. Like it's one of those things where it like saves you money in the end. I think like for most orgs, like working with a digital advertising agency, while it costs you money to work with them, it saves you money because your creative is more impactful and goes further, right? We've been chatting about these firms that are polit- in our political space. I'm fully confident that there are a lot more and bigger firms who are in the commercial space, who have relationships with famous people. Is there any time when those are appropriate for an interface for a campaign if the campaign's big enough? There's got to be expertise there too. Yeah, it's a bit of a yes and. Yeah, if you're running a big national entity and, and you're spending millions of dollars on inf- you know on, on digital advertising and you've got a big chunk of that, I, I think it could make sense. If, if you know the creative 
agency, the creator creative agency doing it. There are some individual contractors and, and, and not that I don't want to name them. I just can't pull them off the top of my head who actually work with some of the A-listers in Hollywood already and can help make that connection and do it in an authentic way and help you understand what you're paying for and what you're getting when you do it. How do you stay abreast of all this? What is the main source of information that you're consuming to be up to date? The summits, not to like toot our own horn, but like, you know, this is all drinking from a fire hose. You know, so much of this digital stuff right now, it's a real benefit because I am in, I, I sit in on every session and listen to everything that, that folks are sharing. And and to be honest, I think LinkedIn, LinkedIn has become the like, it's the serious social network. But it's also like the old school Facebook for millennials. Professional millennials are just like all over LinkedIn now. <laughs> People who are doing digital stuff as a profession, they're talking about it there. There's a lot of great content there. I'll definitely be amplifying more. But really, you know, these summits by design, <laughs> they're digital first and bringing in consistent folks who really know what they're talking about. And so I, I learn a ton. It's one of the things I love about hosting the summits, right? Because I'm learning myself, right? Like I've written a book on it, not the book, right? Like this stuff is always evolving. And so I think anytime you can get it in a snapshot, and I'll say one of the things that, that, that I think is really helpful, there are other folks doing some social media slash digital for social impact and things like that. And I encourage you to check out their stuff too. Well, who do you have in mind when you say that? I mean, you go to Netroots, there's some awesome stuff. Uh, N10 has some great stuff. It's pricey to get to, right? Like, and, and I want to share like that. One of the reasons I do everything online is, is accessibility, right? We, we want, to, no matter where you are in the country or the world, I, I want you to be able to like get access to this knowledge. And there's not the thousand dollar barrier just to travel, right? Like I've always found that hard. Like when I was a, when I was a digital director, I was like, oh shit, <laughs> to send my team here. It's not even ticket price, but it's like a thousand dollars basic travel expense, right? But I love what N10's doing. Beth Becker, she does a lot of in-person training and online too. And I just, I love what Beth is always doing. And that is like digital first, really high quality content. And obviously we train together and some of our trainers do different things together. Community Boost does some interesting stuff too. And they're more charity advocacy. And the one thing I want to say is I used to think early on that like you could just consume digital marketing from the for-profit world and just apply it. And I think they really split. Early on, I was adapting, right? Like people are like, where do you go to learn? I was like, I would read Seth Godin. I would read folks like that. And I would adapt, right? I'd be like, oh, well, that's interesting. But like the funnel doesn't quite apply because I'm not trying to squeeze people into a purchase. I'm trying to expand my relationship. That's a really different pathway, right? The, the marketing funnels are about squeezing. And that, that's why I call it the digital engagement cycle. Like how do we keep people engage? How do we give them pathways and opportunities to engage? And so I think it is important to not just consume the for-profit stuff because you start to think about people as like a commodity versus an individual we need to build engagement around. And I think it's, it's just a fundamentally pretty big split between those two things. You can learn a lot about personas and engagement, but you have to like uncouple a lot of kind of toxic baggage from that if you actually want to engage humans long-term. When I hear you talking about what you do, part of what goes on in my mind is I think it's valuable, but I think it's a hard business. It's a hard business to scale or to make a lot of money on or whatever. Tell me about it as a business. How have you made this work in this space for this long and why do you keep doing it? <laughs> it is very hard. I do because I care. 
to be honest, at, at the end of the day, like I, I see what can be done with digital. I've done it with digital and I'm trying to figure out how to help more organizations do that because we, we don't, we don't win, right? Like at the end of the day, we don't win if we don't do it. I think a great example of people who, who like got it and like fight for 15, they got it. Like they did the thing and there's a $15 minimum wage in so many places in this country. It was a long a long digital strategy and campaign coupled with a lot of things, but they got it on the digital side and there's a lot of issues we're losing on. <laughs> we are losing and it is easier for the right to, to do this, right? Because they're actually pretty good at marketing. <laughs> a lot of them just take playbooks from corporate marketing and they have the money of corporate marketers and they've invested in digital in ways that we are far behind on. I talked to two people from vocal media. And their estimate was that in the creator marketing space, that progressives were getting beaten five to one. Does that accord with anything that you've seen? And if it's true or somewhat near true, why would you say that is? And what can we do about it? If someone's telling you that from, then I think they know. And I will tell you, they were investing in the creator space for 15 years now. They were definitely supporting YouTube, right-wing YouTube people, right? They, they were supporting bloggers before YouTube was a big thing, right? Like they have built a right-wing echo chamber and now it's like an alternate reality, right? Like they've built a, an alternate digital reality that people are consuming, right? And, and it interfaces between Fox, right? So I'm like, oh, you mean Fox? I'm like, no. Like you'll see these crazy stories start on some random person's blog or now YouTube channel or even conservative TikTok, and it'll bounce around the echo chamber. You'll see it replicated a number of places, and then it'll be on Fox, right? You know, I mean, it'll definitely be on the crazier Fox. So what should we be doing? Investing. <laughs> um, inv investing and building relationships, right? Like there are lots of people online who do want to spread progressive messaging, and they're just disconnected from orgs because orgs aren't relationship building. I was thinking about today a little bit about like my ongoing concern that I hear echoed around, around all the place that Biden and the Democrats are not doing enough or don't have their act together or should be doing more of this or more of that. And I, it occurred to me that this is our democracy and it's really our responsibility to do our part and that maybe I will feel better about things. If, if you care about this, stop worrying about what they're doing and just start doing what these creators are doing, spreading the message that you think will work to the people that you talk to. Yeah, I think that's totally right. <laughs> One of the things I've talked a lot about over the years is is building uh, an, like an advocates network or a social ambassadors network. It's a thing Beth Becker talks and trains a lot on too. Some of the tools that I work a lot with are tools that do that well also. And I think it's critical. I think every org though needs to be building that. To assume that people will do it on their own, I think is not right. You know, you kind of have to make it easier for folks in some way. And I don't think we've done a great job at that as the left. And we're different. Uh, functionally, right, the left is a broad coalition. And what we see on the right is a smaller coalition that kind of gets in line more often. Obviously, not always, but more often. 
But I think people have to work on the issues that they care about and use them to drive engagement themselves also. Yes, we all have a responsibility. Do you know the Unified, they're building a social network for activists? Yeah, yeah. I, I've not been in, in, I've not been as engaged in that tool lately. Do you have an opinion about it? No, yeah, no, no, no opinion other than like, thank you for reminding me. I need to go catch back up with them and see. Because I know they're having a conference coming up in March. Take a note. Yeah. <laughs> Unified Jam. Brad, what should I have asked you that I failed to ask you? You know, I, d I don't know quite the question, but I know the answer. <laughs> okay, you, you tell me the answer and I'll tell you what the question is. Yeah, it's a little bit about the state of digital today. What do you think about the state of digital today? For what, what do you think about the state of digital today for progressive orgs? It's not good. I don't say that cheerfully. I mean, uh, you, you earlier talked about groups being five years behind. Yeah. Is it like that? Yeah. Still where we are. And I think some, some groups pulled back last year. There was a great, you know, f funding was, was a mess for a lot of orgs and orgs pulled back on, on a lot of funding and then they pulled back on their digital work and it's not stuff you can really catch up on. You kind of have to reboot and rebuild in a lot of places. I think one of our big struggles is the majority of orgs are led by leadership who have not invested in understanding digital themselves yet. I posted my article about digital for social impact 2.0. How long would it be accept, ac acceptable for an ED or a manager in an org to not understand fundraising, to not understand marketing, to not understand messaging, to not understand infrastructure, to not understand how they're building, what are the things in their organizational infrastructure? Digital is all of those things and more. <laughs> and people are just like, yeah, yeah, it's just a thing I don't know. Someone else will do that. And it's that cannot be an acceptable answer, right? The, the, we have to find a way. And if you're a leader or you're supporting leaders, you should be supporting their transition to understanding digital and how it, it moves them forward. What, one of the professions out there is like executive coach for an organization, right? For a nonprofit or a for-profit should they be having a digital coach? Is that kind of what you do? Are there other people they could go to? If you were advising an executive of a progressive organization, how to come up to speed, a busy person who's already got a, a broad portfolio of things they need to be on top of, what's the shortcut there? Yeah, they should be working with a coach. And yeah, that is something that we do. Uh, we didn't even talk about this. We were, we were launching shortly here. And maybe by the time the podcast comes out, our organizational accelerator, because we see so many orgs stuck that we want to help them figure out what all isn't working and have some real talk with leadership about how do you move forward and what does moving forward mean for your organization with supporting organizational leadership. At the risk of asking you one too many questions, it seems like what you have here is something that ought to be heard by a lot more people. How can you scale your organization to be able to do that? Or who could help you scale? Yeah, I'll give you the really honest answer there. This has been built as a labor of love. Didn't come from money. <laughs> so, you know, I see some people who like they launch a thing and they're like, wow, it was super successful. It's like, well, it turns out they were really connected to money or they just themselves had money. Right. And so it's like it's a lot easier to do a thing when you've got money from the get go. Well, some people are also good at raising money. Some people are also very good at raising money, and I love those people. And that's not me. I'm, you know, I'm a strategist and a doer, less of a fundraiser. And so, yeah, I think I think the the willing to put that ask and opportunity out there. If you're working with an entity that wants to help us 
truly grow organizations. We can move people into cohorts. You can help us fund bigger programs so we can move more organizations faster. And so, you know, foundations or incubators or entities that are helping fund things, we would love your support in scaling out all of this work. Are you a for-profit entity? We are a for-profit entity to, you know, a number of reasons, but one of them is that allows us to work with whoever uh, you want. Yeah. Yeah. Whoever we want. Yeah. Okay. Well, Brad, I'm, I'm glad to have the chance to get to know you. Anything else you want to say? This has been great. Thank you. Appreciate the work you're doing, getting all this info out to folks and hopefully some folks find us on the podcast and, and join us at some of the upcoming events. That was Brad. He is at centerfordigitalstrategy.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.